Brethren, turn to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. It's a hard text for the modern mind. Well, that's okay. Numbers chapter 25, and of course we spent our time last week talking about verses 1 to 3. Let me remind you of just kind of where we're at briefly. Um, King Balak of the Midianites <clears throat> hired the pagan prophet, Balaam, a subcontractor, I guess, for him, and he hired him. And his duty was very plain and very straightforward, very simple. Curse Israel that they might be destroyed. See, that was what he was hiring Balaam to do, the pagan prophet, Balaam. And uh, King Balak, as I, we told you, we fe he, they f he feared Israel, who is now encamped in the plains of Moab, over which he ruled. And now that they're on his turf, we, and Moab, they're, they're right there up against the Jordan, right adjacent to the Promised Land. And Israel had been wandering for 40 years. And uh, King Balak knew along the way, just recently, he just f defeated two pagan kings and their armies. The children of Israel, the wandering nomads of Israel, defeated those pagan kings and armies. And now he's on my territory. What's to become of us? So he wants to get at Israel before they get at him. I'm sure that's how he's thinking. Well, God sovereignly, as we said, God sovereignly intervened and prevented Balaam from prophesying any kind of curse on Israel. In fact, he made Balaam prophesy blessings on Israel, which drove King Balak berserk. Didn't make him very happy. So Balaam advised King Balak uh, to have his Moabite women become temptresses in the presence of these uh, Jewish men in their province and to ensnare these men into fornication and adultery. And once that hook is there, that physical hook and that particular sin, and they're, they're in... Um, you know, forbidden fruit. And once they've got them, they can ensnare the Israelite men to come to their feasts, which happened to be for Baal Peor. And well, you know, these women, they kind of got these guys by the nose. And then, you know, while we're here, this is what we do. We worship him. You come worship my gods, right? Remember, worship this, the rabbis told us. So they ensnared them in idolatry. And we're told, out, told that the Jewish men actually fell down and worshipped Baal. Active idolatry, not passive. So God was angry. And the false prophet, the pagan prophet, the pagan prophet, he happened to prophesy true things, the blessings God told him to, so... He was a false prophet because he served false gods. But this pagan prophet had advised King Balak, look, you ensnare the, you, you ensnare the, 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 the men of Israel into fornication and idolatry, and the Lord will judge and destroy Israel like you want me to do, but Jehovah won't let me do it. So you'll get God to do what you wanted me to do, and it's my bright idea, so I still get a paycheck, right? I'm sure that's what he's thinking. So that's the plan, and it was a very evil, ingenious plan, no doubt. Get God to destroy his own people. 
Because Balak doesn't care who destroys them as long as they're destroyed because he's a little bit afraid of them. And the plan seemed to work, according to the first three verses. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people, that is the children of Israel, unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat, that is the children of Israel did eat, and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel as Balaam accurately predicted would, would happen if they fell into the sin. And certainly God's anger was ignited. Now, just how angry did God get? How much danger was Israel in now due to their sin? What price would God exact on his people for their apostasy and idolatry here? Well, we're told, right? Verse 4, And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. Verse 5 as well. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay every, everyone, his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Now God's angry. Now, just a little context here. Um, we see that the command was, in verse 4, the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun. Uh, I'm of the opinion, uh, he's not talking about their physical heads. Okay? Um, he's talking about their heads as in their leaders. The princes, the nobles, the judges, uh, whoever they may be, who were guilty of this sin themselves and engaged in this, I, this fornication and this idolatry. In all likelihood, the leaders in particular, um, who not only seemed to stomach the idolatry, but they in, joined in on the idolatry and in the fornication, in the adultery, and they participated. And that's a, little, uh, that's a little bit too far to go. And so when I look at the, uh, the phrase, take all the heads of the people, he's talking about the leaders of the people, not their physical ha heads. He's not talking about decapitation and nailing the heads to a wall, okay? He's saying execute them and hang up their corpses. He is saying that. Hang up their corpses against the sun, Take all the heads of the people and hang them, the heads of the people, the princes, any priests, any leader, any judge that involved themselves and set a bad example for the nation in this regard, take them up and hang them before the Lord against the sun. Now, someone could say, well, this may simply mean hang and display them, display their dead bodies in broad daylight for all to see and to fear. Well, yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, there's no doubt that's intended here, and the what text tells us as much. But there is an additional point um, that maybe is being made by God here uh, in this somewhat macabre and gruesome 
uh, demand. When he says, hang them up before the Lord against the sun, it could be, I can't say this dogmatically, but it could be that that was a declaration that represents God's defiance and rebuke at Moab's fake and blasphemous false god, Baal. Baal Peor, to them, was the sun god. Israel's men had committed fornication, and by the way, it was ritual fornication. It wasn't just, hey, come to my place. No, this was like temple. This, that's how they operated, Baal Peor. There was temple sexual horrors in the worship to their pagan god. It was a very licentious society that way. And, uh, you know, something horrible. And so Baal Peor was the sun god, and Israel's men committed fornication, ritual fornication, with these pagan, pagan sun-worshipping women and the gods of the Moabites, and they fell down and worshipped this sun god in particular. The children of Israel on the front doorstep of the Holy Land that God's about to give them after they wanted 40 years because they sinned 40 years before at the front doorstep of Israel. And here they are at the front doorstep. And these are the children that didn't sin 40 years ago. What are they doing now? Do we never learn anything from history? (laughs) Like, never? But they were worshiping the false sun god on the very threshold of the land where God was going to place himself and his name in his people. So it could be that God was having these Baal worshipers killed and hung up, we're told, before the Lord against the sun. Take their bodies and hang them up in the face of the sun, which you've been fornicating with, the false god of the sun. So you take the bodies of the dead Israelites and you hang them up before the sun god they worshipped at the fornicating with these pagans I told them not to do that with. And let's just see if their sun god that they worshipped on my doorstep will deliver them from my wrath. It could be God was doing that. It's an awfully big coincidence that it was the sun god. And the terminology, in spite of the Holy Ghost, given by God, is hang them up before the sun. No, I can't say that, because, you know, you see that phrase, but it's very specific in this situation. He's defying their gods that they worship, making mockery of their disobedience, and showing his anger about it, and underscoring exactly what they did. by You know what? If I was a Jew and I had just been finished being guilty of worshiping a sun god, and the god says, take the dead bodies of the people who are responsible and hang them up before the sun, I mean, that would hit me. I would think of that. It doesn't take Pastor Gallagher and Foster to think of it. If I was involved with that, that's the first thing I'd think of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, a little technical note here. This isn't really that important. for. The, I'll, I'll bring it up. Some people interpret the heads of the people as being literal heads, like take their heads and decapitate them and take all their heads and fasten them to the wall. Uh but that would be a mass decapitation, as we're going to see as we go through the text. That would be a mass decapitation, which there'd actually be some logistics involved with that. And the heads of all the people, it says. That's all of them. 
Well, we're going to read there's 24,000 of them. So we're going to have to have mass decapitation of 24,000, then affix 24,000 heads? Okay. So maybe it means head. And just like our, in the English word, we have head mean, you know, Ukrainian, and, or it can mean a potentate, a leader. It was the same with this word. Okay. So, but some people think it is, was actually the heads. Well, in a sense, that's neither here nor there. Um, others interpret the heads of the people as just gather the ringleaders. But who are the ringleaders? And how do you judge that? And they get put to death and they, they made an example of, okay? I tend to interpret it, along with many others, I would say most, I tried looking that up to find out. And, you know, most commentators would agree with what I'm saying and, I'm agreeing with what they're saying, whatever, but that's how it strikes me. Uh, they interpret it the same way I'm saying it, and that it's a reference to the leaders of Israel that had engaged in this sin. And not all of them did. I don't know how many did. Well, actually, we do know how many. Well, I'll show you that later. But they were guilty. These were leaders who were guilty of this fornication, this adultery, and this idolatry. And they were guilty of sins. The princes, the judges, the tribal heads, the priests, any priest involved. And they're going to be set as examples. That would be a smaller, a smaller, more manageable number to have to hang up before the sun instead of 24,000 people. And it may be the Lord did it this way. He's only making this public example of the leaders to say, Oh, Israel, all you that have sinned, see your leaders. And they would look to the leaders and see the horror of their bodies there. And they would realize and they'd think to myself, the dignity of their office did not prevent this from happening in the presence of God. Their preeminence as leaders and men, men of maybe education and, 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 and wherewithal and means, and there they are. It would terrorize the sinners in Israel and would teach them to feel God. And I don't think they were killed by decapitation. As I said in verse 9, it says, And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. A lot of heads to take off and then hang up. See? Instead, I think a smaller group of leaders were hung up as, as I said, a public example, while the rest were just simply killed according to the orders given in verse 5. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay every, every one his men, that were joined unto Baal Peor. So he says to the leaders and the judges, when he says, slay everyone his men, those, you know, these judges would have a province they ruled over, a certain tribes or tribe, and they had certain segment of responsibility. So those that sinned in your area of responsibility, slay them. So we have two different executions here, the executions of the leaders and then of the people at large. And I think there's further evidence for that. If you go to, uh, keep your finger here, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, it's a detail, but the story's so gruesome that, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> there's an interest in some of those details, you know, it's just the way that it is. Like, what is happening? Whoa. I don't want to seem like we're glossing over it, so, you know, that's why I'm doing this. But in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 8. No, we don't. Well, yeah, verse 8. 
Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now, Paul is referencing Numbers 25. That's what he's referencing. Read the context. Now, wait a minute. No, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Paul says 23,000. In Numbers, it said 24,000. Ah, I see Bible inconsistencies. Bible's not the word of God. <laughs> Is this a Bible discrepancy? There's no question. I agree. Paul said it was 23,000. In Numbers, it's recorded in verse 9 as 24,000. Rabbinical literature, as I've told you before, which can't be depended upon as gospel truth, but just like um, if someone wrote a history on something that happened, say, 20 years ago in Rhode Island that was very notable, and they write the history, and it's a page long. It's kind of going to be a summary. But the people that live here, they can give you pages after pages because they got details because they live through detail. But the person giving the history gives you an overview of what you need to know. But the local people have details, and they write them down. They teach them to their children and they, because, you know, we're, this is our people. And the same thing with the Bible. The Bible gives us very broad details of big stories about nations, and you just kind of get who did what and who won and why. But there's so much detail when it comes to two nations at war with each other, horrifying details. You don't get those details, you know, hardly. So anyway, the rabbinical teaching, and they're no friends of Jesus, mind you, and they're no friends of the New Testament. They don't want to do anything to prove the New Testament right, right? So the rabbinical teachers tell us that 1,000 leaders, these is their numbers, I found this out by reading John Gill, once again quoting rabbinical Literature. And one, the rabbis teach that 1,000 leaders of Israel were killed and hung up before the sun. As per Numbers 25.4, you take them, the heads. See, that's why I'm saying it's not the physical head. You take the heads of Israel that were engaged in this, and you hang them up before the sun. You kill them and hang up their bodies before the sun. Not saying decapitating. He's talking about the, the authoritative heads that were involved. And rabbinical teaching says, yeah, there was a thousand of them. Well, then they're proving the inspiration of Paul's writing because Paul said there was 23,000 killed that day. Talking about the rest. Because in verse 5 of Numbers 25, in verse 4, he says, take the leaders and hang them up before the sun. And then they turn and say, now, the judges, go and slay every man his brother that committed these things. And then he says down below, 24,000, that's the total, the, 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 the thousand that were executed and displayed for, for a public lesson, and then the 23,000 that were killed, altogether of 24,000. Now Paul here, then, if that's the case, Paul was referencing the common man, what happened to Israel commonly. He isn't talking about the leaders because he's writing to the Corinthians as regular common Christians. And he's warning them, don't you be like your fathers. And he's thinking of the common people in Israel that were slain that day, 23,000. So maybe that rabbinical literature is right. That's the thousand difference. Which I found to be, you know, interesting. And by the way, the word plague, um, 
you go back to Numbers 25, in verse 9, and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. And, uh, you know, you might think, well, was there some kind of plague too, like uh, boils or diseases? No, 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 no. The word plague in Numbers 25, 9 can, can refer to like a pestilence or a disease or something like that. Yes, it can refer to that. But it can also simply mean, you look up the definition of the Hebrew word, it can simply mean slaughter. That's the word they give, slaughter. And as, as, as in the sense of a mass killing. So the word plague doesn't necessarily mean like what we're thinking of, like a disease, or you got the bubonic plague, or, or that kind of black lung, or whatever. Uh, but uh, a slaughter, a plague from God. And you find out when you look at the word, you do a little word study on it, it speak, that word is speaking most often of divine, the divine judgment of God, which he sends on his people for their sins. It's referred to as a plague. But sometimes it's men coming in and killing them. So it's that kind of plague. <laughs> Why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 quotes the divine slaughter of 23,000 Israelites. Why is he talking about that? We didn't look at that. We go back to 1 Corinthians 10 because that's, I think, an important point. Why did Paul mention Numbers 25 and the 23,000 uh, children of Israel that were slain that day as they, the, the judges were commanded to slay? And by the way, the rabbi said that when they said to the judges, go and slay every man his brother that's you know, guilty of this, the rabbi said they went and did it with swords. <laughs> you know, the leaders went out with swords. I mean, these guys, they weren't like those slouches up on Capitol Hill or something like that. They can barely get themselves out of their chairs sometimes. Now, these guys went out there with swords, and they're going to take care of business, you know? It's like, wow. It's like back in the days when kings went into battle, they weren't couch potatoes. At least that's the way it was with David. He was no couch potato. But why is Paul mentioning the, 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 the killing of all these Jews at this, at this situation in Numbers 25? Well, let's see. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Our fathers. See, he's writing to the Christians at Corinth. He refers to the Jewish nation as our fathers. By the way, a lot of believers at Corinth would still be Gentiles. And he refers to them as our fathers, you see. Well, there must be some kind of Israel of God thing going on there. For, yeah. And all were baptized unto Moses into the cloud, in the cloud, and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, there's a lot of imagery there, but we don't have time for that. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were... Our examples. Who's our? He's writing to the believers at Corinth, New Testament believers at Corinth. Now these things are our examples to the intent that we, who's we? He's writing to the Corinthian believers 2,000 years ago, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, specifically those women that Balak sent out. And verse 7, 
Neither be ye, you Christians in Corinth. Neither be ye idolaters like they were. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them in Numbers chapter 25. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Which they did at Sinai too. Don't you be idolaters the way they were. Don't you fall into the lust trap like they did. And 23,000 died. Paul specifically referenced in Numbers chapter 25. In verse 8, Neither let us, believers in the first century at Corinth, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. Numbers 25. Let us, neither let, neither let us, us, Talking to Christians, let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. You remember that story? Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured. See, he keeps bringing up all the sins of Israel in the past. He's saying, see that? That's meant for our example. In the New Testament, as Christians, don't be like them. That's why Paul's bringing it up. He's using Numbers chapter 25 as a means of inspiring New Testament Christians that are just filled with the love of Jesus and don't want to hear these big, scary things. Well, Paul thought it would be useful for them to hear these big, scary things, because you know what? We have weaknesses, too. You say, well, they did that. They're so bad. Well, remember, I said, King David, man after God's own heart, fell to lust. His son, wisest man in the face of the earth, fell to lust. Wisest man in the face of the earth by divine gift. And then the strongest man that ever lived by divine gift, Samson, fell to lust. Paul is saying, look at them. And the modern Christians hate Paul doing that. Because they want to call that legalism when we do it. Like, oh, you're just trying to intimidate. You're trying to use guilt and fear in people. And that's not right. We're in the New Testament age. And in the New Testament age, just flowers fall from the sky. And there's little bunny rabbits and unicorns everywhere. Because that's what Jesus is. It's like my little pony. No, it isn't. My little pony. Pastor Gugini would say, it would be more of a jackass, he would say. <laughs> he would, too. If you were here, you knew that. I was listening to a, a just this week. I don't know how it came. It just was on my feed. Like this preterist YouTuber. I never heard him before. I don't know who he was. Some guy. But he was a YouTuber. He had some kind of little channel. And uh, I clicked on, oh, well, let's see what he's saying, you know. And he, he got to complaining about legalistic ministers who just like they bear down heavy and they just put guilt uh, for sin. You know, the point he was making about parousia, I was agreeing with. Like, okay, well, yeah, he's got a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, he has to couch it in this. And he starts saying, you know, but, you know, I came out of those churches. When I, before I was a preterist, I was like the establishment. I was used to going to these churches where they just lay guilt on you and talk about the, the judgment of God and things like that. But you know what? He said, and he said it almost just like this. He said, but that's not the experience I've had. He goes, because, you know, in the middle of the night, so many times in the middle of the night, it could be two in the morning. And I'll just, you know, the Lord... He'll like whisper in my ear. He goes, I actually hear him. And he goes, and he whispers in my ear. And he affirms me. He says, you're doing good. You're doing well. And 
you know, you're such a blessing to me. And he goes, that's the God we serve. This is the new covenant. We're in the, the new heavens and earth. And he's going on. I'm saying, oh, stop it, will you? I don't know. You know, he does represent a certain number of them. I don't know what the number is because I've seen that before. Everything's all over. There's no more churches. Like I said earlier, you know, we're, we're just sitting at home and arguing each other about the details of Revelation 20, you know. It's like, okay, I got better things to do too besides that. Paul brought up Numbers 25. For Christian instruction to warn them, let that be your example. But I don't have a problem with that. I think, you know, we need that sometimes. It's not legalistic. Um, it's understanding human nature and giving proper warning. Do we still believe that the Lord chastens those whom he loves, or is that just for people before 70 AD? Bob George, well, Bob George wasn't a 70 AD, but Bob George says, no, no, the Lord doesn't chasten anybody. But I mean, he's the here, here, my, I think it was W.A.R.V., Bob George, what a horror show. And Bob George would say, oh, yeah, when, uh, well, when uh, um, uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira came in and uh, Ananias died and then Sapphira died, well, you know, he just died of a heart attack. The Lord didn't do that. He just heard, oh, you didn't give all your money for the sale of your house, and he just felt guilty and he had a heart attack. That's what Bob George said over the radio. On the same channel I was on, I had to go wash my hands after that. Now, Paul's saying, Numbers 25, you see what the Lord did? Now, don't you be like them. He said that to Christians. He's going to be a legalist. He's the kind of people that people separate from so they can meet, so they can sit. No, they don't, they don't meet. So they can sit in their couches and be holier than thou as they argue with each other about details of things that, you know, only affect so many people in this world right now. He was dissuading Christians from fornication and adultery and idolatry. He said, don't forget it. So if they want to hate on me, I still were talking about people hating us, maybe. You know, this goes out all over the airways. Listen to that guy. He's, he's so archaic, you know. Well, they can hate on me all they want. It isn't really going to bother me because, you know what, I figure if that's the way Paul argued, I think I'm in good company. So I'm good with that, you know. It's not, I'm not, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, <laughs> you know. Let's go back to Numbers 25. You know, when you're standing in the truth, you can enjoy it. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a zippity doo thing, because if you're, you're not disagreeing with God, well, you're kind of feeling in a good comfort zone. Well, you ought to feel that way. <laughs> when you're kind of fiddling around with God, then you've got to be looking over your shoulder, like, what am I, you know, who, who might think I could, I'm kidding, you know. But Numbers chapter 25 and verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel, okay, here we're getting down to it here. One of the children of Israel came and brought his brethren, a Midianitish woman, in the sight of Moses, and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Why were they weeping? They had committed adultery, fornication, and they had fallen down and worshipped Baal. And the Lord said, kill them. 
and they watched the dead bodies of their leaders that they looked up to. Hang said, this is what the Lord thinks. And then the leaders that were faithful, they went out with their swords and ran through people's fathers and mothers and uncles and aunts and killed them. And the, the people shook with the fear of God. It took that for them to fear God again. And then and when they're in the midst of weeping and in repentance, here comes this guy with a little holla wife here from the Midianites, and here we are, here's a tent over here, that's a good spot. And everybody watches him. At the front doorstep of Canaan. When they're in the midst of repentance. Verse 7, and when Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. Hmm. Yeah, God was angry. And he judged the people according to their sins. And someone says, that's vigilantism. Well, yes and no. Did he take matters into his own hands? He did. He didn't take the matter before the judges and present his case. Hey, this we, we saw this woman. What say ye? He didn't bring him. He didn't bring that couple before the judges. He just went in and took care of business. So it was vigilantism. Well, I'll say this. He did what he did, first of all. He did what he did not to simply placate his own anger and contempt, which was a righteous anger and contempt. But he didn't do it just to, complain, uh, to placate his own anger for the people's sins. He didn't do it just to appease his own wrath. He did it to placate the anger of God. And it was an act of love and righteous intervention on his part to save Israel from total destruction. It was a defensive move for the sake of the nation. And you, someone may say, says who? <laughs> God. Verse 10, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath... Ha Phineas hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that, a connective word, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. I, that's the way that's written. Seems to me Phineas had a pretty good idea what God might do in this situation. He knows the history of 40 years ago 
And all the people that were guilty, that whole generation, their carcasses died in the wilderness. They're even more guilty after seeing their mothers and fathers die that way and pay that penalty. Now they're at the threshold of the door, and now look what they're doing. Phineas says, I know what the Lord will do. I'll act on the Lord's behalf in jealousy for the Lord, and it may save our people. That's what I'm seeing. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. He appeased me while he was zealous for my sake. Now, see, not his own. He was angry, but it was for the name of the Lord. For my sake among them, that, that, so he did this, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. So when I said he was actually doing it still, as an, in, in addition to all these other things, as an act of love to try and spare his people from total ruin. And God knew his heart, and he saw that. And you know what? The psalmist concurs. Go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, starting at verse 28. Talking about Numbers 25. They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that, now look, see, so the plague was stayed. So Phineas brought an end to the plague. Maybe more would have died. It was his action that brought an end to it. So I don't think the guilty parties numbered 24,000. I think there was more. But the Lord stopped the killing because of what Phineas did. Now watch this. Verse 30, then stood Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. Oh, except ours, because we don't like God thinking that way. But wait a minute. Don't those words sound familiar? And that was counted unto him for righteousness. Well, that's Romans 4, except we're talking about Abraham. He believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Is this the gospel here? Yeah, it is. Say, no, yes, it is. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. So it can't be his good works that was accounted unto him for righteousness. It was the faith of Phineas that said, I know my God and his holiness. I know what he did to our fathers. We're our own worst enemy out of love for his people and out of contempt for his people and love for God. I must put an end to this madness. And so it, Phineas believed God. He believed him in, just intuitively by faith, trusted in his judgment and knew, knew the mind of God. Stink bug. Knew the mind of God. And he acted for God's integrity and for the, perhaps, the saving of a portion of them, which it did appease God, and he stopped the killing. 
It was a counter to him for righteousness. That's telling me what, what Phineas did in the end, at the beginning and in the end, was an exercise of his faith in God. And that's how God saw it. Now, he could have just been so angry. I hate these people for always going against the leaders. They're always going against Moses. Let me go in and kill them. And it was more of like a bitter thing because they're opposing Moses. They're opposing. And I'm sick of this. No, that, Phineas's heart must have been more pure than that. He was thinking of God. He was also thinking of the people. And God could see that. And that faith that caused him to do that, because faith without works is dead. What do you think about that example, is faith without works? Try and tell that, you evangelical congregation. They run you out of town. <laughs> faith without works is dead. Well, that was God's judgment. You say, but isn't it still vigilanteism? I mean, he just took matters into his own hands. So when we see injustice, we'll just start taking knives and stabbing people. No. I'll tell you why. I'll give you another reason I don't, you don't really categorize it that way. Be, not only just because of his motive as God saw it, and as an act of love and fear of God. But you got to remember this as well. And by the way, I don't think this text, they say, is vigilantism. I don't think Phineas is negating the teachings of Roger Williams and the persecution of the conscience by using the sort of state. Well, how doesn't it refute Roger Williams in that argument? Okay, how is that? How is it that this is not vigilanteism. How is it that this doesn't rebuke Roger Williams in using the sword of state to punish evildoers? Well, first of all, America is not the theocracy of God. There is no nation on this earth that is the theocracy that belongs to God. There's no nation on this earth that is God's private possession on earth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so we're all his possession in, an, in another sense. But in the primary sense, spiritual sense in which we're talking, covenant relationship, there's no nation on this earth. And that it particularly includes fake Israel, but that's true for all nations. We're not, we, we can't put ourselves in the shoes of Israel of old because we're not them. America's not them. It doesn't apply. If we were, then yet yeah, that might come into play. But we're not, and there is no nation like that. And secondly... In, I think it's back in uh, Numbers 25, actually, what I want to bring here. Numbers 25. I think I have that right. Numbers 25 and verse 7. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest. See? The son of Aaron, the priest. Verse 11, Phineas, the son of Eliza, the son of Aaron, the priest. Was this vigilantism? Phineas was not a private citizen. He was a priest in the theocracy of Israel. There's no division between church and state in the theocracy of Israel. Phineas was a public official, a priest in the line of Aaron, and as such, he may well have been one of the judges referenced in verse 5. And Moses said to the, unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every man, every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Well, there's Phineas, a priest of God. He could have been one of those judges. He's a priest. 
He wasn't guilty of these things. And this man came into the camp that he was in with the Midianitish woman. And he saw it. And he may have had that very commission placed on him. We're not told, but, you know, he wasn't acting out of line. He was acting as the official of God. Commissioned to do what he did. We can ask the question, why did this one execution stop God, though? It's very clear. The texts say that it stopped because of what Phineas did, which makes it seem like there's more people that would have died. The, the total number of sinners was not 24,000. I don't know how much higher it would have gone. I don't know how widespread it was. But we know there was more. Why did this one execution terminate the wrath of God? Because it was so scandalous in its nature and timing. The people were in the midst of repenting. The, the dead bodies were already being fastened to the wall. Sons and daughters and uncles, well, I don't know so much about daughters, but the, the, many of the men were being killed. He said to the judges, you go and kill them. And this mayhem was going all around. The people were repenting in ashes and they saying, what are we doing? And then this guy brazenly comes in with the woman. I'm going to do it anyway. So that death, it was so notorious. The scandal was so notorious and the deaths so timed that everybody knew of it and now they feared God and the Lord said, that's enough. They got the message. And God honored Phineas for his zealous act of faith. It was accounted to him for righteousness. An act of faith on God's behalf. And according to probably the commandment specifically given to him, who was probably one of the judges, the righteous judges that would have to execute judgment. So in verse 12 and 13, Numbers 25, Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him, my, to Phineas, my covenant of peace. And he shall have it, and he seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. You know, the infamy. Now, the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Selu, a prince of the chief house of the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianitish woman that was slain was Cosby. We know who the bad people were. And the names were put in Scripture for us to know who they were specifically. Even as New Testament Christians that it's all flowers and uh, unicorns. Maybe those were the people that needed the most. God blessed and honored Phineas. Your children, your children's children, your children's children will all serve in the priesthood because of this righteous act that you have done on my behalf. One last observation. We'll close with this observation. This is a small one. 
Think of the difference that the act of just one obedient believer can make. The action of Phineas stopped the death toll. It caused God to say, that's enough. The act of one man, Phineas. The difference, think of the difference that one obedient believer can have in a society of corrupt sinners, because that's where Phineas' situation was. He was just one man. We don't know much of him other than this account. So, you know, he was a priest, but there were many priests in Israel. One man, one act. So I would say, brethren, don't underestimate how God might use you in any one particular situation. Don't underestimate him. Should a man know his limitations? (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I do think he should. That's wise. But don't underestimate what God can do through you if he calls you to it. That you have to determine that. If God calls you to a thing and you know that you, you, you can tell, but then you're afraid, you're, you're, you're pulling a Moses, whoa, whoa, I can't speak, I can't speak, who am I? I mean, wait a minute, you know the Lord's calling you, so what's this I can't speak stuff? Don't underestimate what God can do through you. If he speaks then you follow. And you say, but I feel ill-equipped. Well, you're the exact spot that Moses is in. So then you must determine by faith, by learning, for instance, from Moses, that the Lord will give you what you need in the place that he calls you to. I was this close, this close, to not going to college because I knew I'd have to take a public speaking class. It so scared the daylights out of me. But I felt like the Lord was saying, you go. And even though it wasn't a Christian school to go in the ministry, and I felt like that's what the Lord did. It's like the Lord is saying, you go. Oh, I did. I had to take the class. You know, I got an A in that class. I got to tell you, that first day, I'm so glad there was a teacher's desk and there was a little wooden podium on top of the desk, and the desk was one of the old-fashioned metal ones, so they couldn't see my knees knocking together. He speaks, you follow. And if he calls you to a thing, he'll equip you at the time for the thing you must do. But you don't need to know or be able to have the strength to do it beforehand. You know why? Because you didn't need to do it beforehand. So God's going to take regular people. He's going to take a a normal priest like Phineas. And at a certain time, in a certain situation, maybe things happen in Phineas' life. I don't know the full story. But things happen. For that moment, he was prepared. Do not underestimate how God can use you. Don't have illusions of grandeur and make up God's will for yourself because a man must know his limitations. But when you know the Lord is calling you to something, like I knew when he was calling me in the ministry, I thought, how am I going to do this? I'm afraid to, you know, I wouldn't even raise my hand in class in school. I didn't answer any questions in school. I don't want to, you know, everybody look at me. It was like most people. Well, how am I going to, how am I going to leave the, the church I'm in and just, you know, I can't find a Bible school to go to, so I'm just going to come to Clayville and this little tiny church or a bunch of old people at the time, and I'm just going to you know, just sit here. How am I going to, how am I going to the ministry doing that? But I know he's saying, you come and you go to Clayville for now. 
So I did. Didn't make any sense to me, but if that's what he's saying, little did I know is the answer to all my worries and prayers. Do not under and I, I, you know, I wasn't ready for certain things, but when the time came, I guess I was. Don't underestimate. It's good to have humility. That ought to saturate our whole thought process. But part of humility before God is trusting him. And the funny thing about that is when we, in humility, we trust God and not ourselves, that trusting God gives us boldness. <laughs> so it's funny how humility in the God way will produce boldness of character and strength. We're not all going to be doing the same thing. Some people are going to have to be out front more than others. But do not sell yourself short when you're a tool in the hand of God. If you get anything out of Numbers 25, at least get that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the wonderful lessons that are contained in your word. Even these accounts that uh, scare people witless, they just, you know, God is mean. He's unjust. There's a gruesome aspect. We don't understand he's holy. and We don't understand the depths of our own depravity and sin. We also don't understand the full depths of his mercy and grace. Father, teach us all these things because we need all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.